Today I'm mixing it up a little with our seven picture series. In the, in the previous five sermons of the series, we have looked at the, the five letters to the five churches that Jesus sent through his messenger, John the Revelator. And we've been examining them from the perspective of what are the insights that we can gain of who, call, who God calls us to be as a church and as a people, as individuals in the last days of this earth's history. Today, though, we aren't going to, to look at the characteristics of our sixth church from the perspective of who can we be or as individuals or who can we be as, as a church, but rather we are going to look at it from the perspective of who Jesus is and what this means for us in these last days. So please open your Bibles with me to the book of Revelation chapter 3. And I'll be beginning in verse 7. Revelation chapter 3 in verse 7. And to the angel, or some of your versions say, and to the messenger of the church in Philadelphia, write. First, let me pause to point out that Philadelphia is, is, is one of the two cities, along with Thyatira, that some scholars, for instance, Gutenberg, or with, takes a cynical view and he asks the question, why is Philadelphia and why is Thyatira even included amongst these, these churches? Because they were so insignificant in some scholars' minds. Philadelphia's main purpose was to be a city that would serve as, as somewhat of a gateway. It was on the borders of, of uh, the Greco-Roman world and it was, it was to serve as a gateway to spread Greek culture. That was its purpose. This is why actually a lot of sermons about the church in Philadelphia, and, 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 and as I looked back on some of my own sermons that I had preached, I realized this is what I've preached about in regards to Philadelphia as well, but the focus is oftentimes on the believer's need to be witnesses. And there's some things within the history of that church, and there's some statements within the context of the, of the passage that, that, that tend to lead towards that idea of we are called to be witnesses. Of course, we talked about that uh, last week when we talked about uh, the church in Sardis and how they were, God was calling them to be an alive church, not just have a reputation of being alive, but actually being alive, a growing, a, 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 a gospel-driven church. So we're not going to hit on that again today. As I was writing this sermon this week, my, my eyes... While I've seen it that way in the past, my eyes did not see this text in that same way. I, I saw something else, and, and what jumped out at me when I studied the Church of Philadelphia this week was Jesus. Who Jesus is, and, and what Jesus does, and, and what that means to me, and hopefully what it means to you as well. Let me show you what I mean. And to the angel or to the messenger of the church in Philadelphia, write the words of the Holy One, the true one, who has the key of David, who opens and no one will shut, who shuts and no one will open. In, these, in this first verse, there are, are three descriptors. Jesus re receives three descriptors, or some may say three titles. He is the Holy One. That's the first title that is given to him. Jesus is our friend. Jesus is our, our counselor, Jesus is our brother, Jesus is our, is our advocate, but we must never forget that Jesus is holy. 
Jesus is holy. The word holy actually means to be different, to be set apart. And Jesus is holy because he is different from us. He's different from anybody else that has ever walked this earth. He has that quality, quality of being which, which belongs to him and him alone. Yes, yes, his divinity, but, but also that, that, that it is he alone that saves. It is he alone that creates. To be holy is to be set apart unlike the rest. And that is Jesus through and through. We should embrace Jesus and, and the intimate aspects of Jesus. We should, should embrace him in the intimacy and in the depths of our heart as our, as our brother and our friend because that's what he refers to us. I no longer call you a stranger, but I call you friend. Or, or Jesus tells us in the book of, of Hebrews that, that he's not ashamed to call us his brothers. We should embrace Jesus with this intimate heart. But, but at the same time, we should never forget that this intimate God is also a wonder. Something beyond our, our comprehension. He is the Holy One. The second title that is given here of Jesus is that He is the True One. In Greek, there are two words for, for true. There is alethes, which means true in the sense that that, that is a true statement. This Bible is black. That is a true statement. If I were to say this Bible is green, that would be a false statement. So, so, so there's aletheitis, which is to say a statement is true and different from a false statement. There is also alethinos, which means real, as opposed to that which is unreal. It is the second of these words which is used here. Jesus is real. He's, he's not a distant figment of our imagination, but, but he is real. When we are confronted with him, we are confronted not with, with a shadowy outline of, of the truth, but we are, we are confronted with truth itself. Remember, Jesus said of himself, and of course, this letter is from him as well. And so, so here also he is speaking of himself. But while Jesus walked this earth in John chapter 14 and verse 5, Jesus said, I am the way the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. I am the way, the truth, and the life. It's why we must be mindful to, 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 to not ignore what Jesus has put before us to be truth. To not reject that. And in some ways, when we reject the, the very truths that Jesus has put before us as his truths, we are Rejecting Jesus himself because he is the embodiment of truth. For cultures that state it doesn't matter what you believe, Jesus counters that by describing himself as the embodiment of truth, the most true and real thing in this world. Not as one who speaks truth is Jesus, but, but, but the substance, the, the actualization of truth is Jesus. And then Jesus' last title is what I saw from a different perspective this time around than I have in the past. And that is that he is the Holy One, he is the True One, but he is the one who has the key of David, who opens the door and no one will shut, who shuts the door and no one can open. This similar phrase is then repeated a verse later in verse 8, where Jesus said in verse 8, 
I know your works. Behold, I have set before you an open door which no man is able to shut. In the past, I've always read those verses and interpreted them to mean that, that, that Jesus has put before his people an open door to be witnesses to others. And I'm not discounting that interpretation. Again, that interpretation is based on the historical context of the city of Philadelphia. Just as the city was to be a gateway to the Greek culture, uh, scholars have said, you know, Jesus wants this church to be a, a gateway for, for his truth to be spread. And so normally I would say here at this point in the sermon, the church of Philadelphia was, was the gateway for spreading the gospel. But this time when, when I read this text and, 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 and I looked deeper at this text and I, I went to the illusions of this text, I think we've mentioned this before, but, but the book of Revelation is, is made up of tons and tons of allusions to the Old Testament. As it has been said, if you want to understand the book of Revelation, understand the rest of the Bible, particularly the Old Testament. Understand the rest of the Bible, but especially the Old Testament, because throughout the Old Testament, uh, the, throughout the book of Revelation, there are allusions to the Old Testament, and, and, and these allusions help us to understand what Jesus is saying in this book and in these letters to the seven churches. And so I read the context of this, of this statement, the one who has the key of David, who opens and no one will shut, who shuts and no one can open. And it comes from the book of Isaiah. This allusion, in fact, it's almost a, a direct quote, comes from the book of Isaiah chapter 22. Isaiah chapter 22, and you can go ahead, keep a finger in Isaiah chapter, or in Revelation chapter 3. But in Isaiah chapter 22 and verse 20, I'll begin there. It reads, In that day I will call my servant, this is God speaking, Eliakim, the son of Hilkiah, and I will clothe him with your robe and will bind your sash on him and will commit your authority to his hand, and he shall be a father to the inhabitants of Jerusalem and to the house of Judah. And I will place on his shoulder the key of the house of David. He shall open and none shall shut. And he shall shut and none shall open. And I will fasten him like a peg in a secure place. And he will become a throne of honor to his father's house. Eliakim was, was, a, was a faithful servant of God. An attendant, a steward of God's, of the king. And God was saying, I was going to put him as, as the attendant, the, the guardian of my temple. He will have the key to the, to the city of David. Eliakim then serves as a symbol of Jesus. There was, at the time of this prophecy, someone that was keeping out God's people in Isaiah. There was... There was, a, there was a nation that was keeping out God's people. They were oppressing God's people. And God tells the nations, soon I will establish Eliakim and he will have the key to the house of David. Now what is the house of David in the prophetic sense? Well, it is the kingdom of God. If you go through the Bible, you see that, that prophetically the house of David represents the kingdom of God. In other words, it represents entering into salvation. When I read that, I realized what this text is pointing to is that Jesus is telling us 
I'm opening a door for you. I'm opening a door for your salvation. I am the way. He's the holy one. He is, he is the real one. And he is the one that has the key to our salvation. He's holy. He's perfect. He's just. While you were yet still sinners, Christ died for the ungodly. Christ died for us. The perfect one became the sacrifice for us. He is, he is the true one. He is the actualization of truth, of the living word. And he is the one that, that has the key to, to our salvation. Eliakim, if you read the text and if you read the story, again, Revelation is alluding to this story, so we have to understand what's going on in the story. And if you read the text, Eliakim is not opening the gates of the city so that people can go out and be witnesses. Of course, you know I care about us going out and be witnesses. That is what I preached about last week, that we need to be alive and be witnesses. But that's not what I see taking place here. Eliakim opens the gate to invite people to come in to receive blessed assurance, the assurance and the protection and, and the joy of being in the kingdom of David, which, which here means the kingdom of God, the assurance of salvation. He's opening the gates, and what is he opening the gates to? Isaiah 26, verses 1 and 2 says this, We have a strong city. He sets up salvation as walls and bulwarks. Open the gates that the righteous nation that keeps faith may enter in. This describes uh, the city as a, as, a, as a place of salvation and that, the, that there are walls and bulwarks, in other words, to give assurance and to give protection. We are invited in here in the church in Philadelphia to, to be a part of the salvation of Jesus, which is a place of blessed assurance. And what will happen inside that city of assurance to those that have opposed the people of God. Isaiah chapter 60 and verse 14 tells us, the sons of those who afflicted you shall come bending low to you and all who despise you shall bow down at your feet. They shall call you the city of the Lord, the Zion of the Holy One of Israel. Oh, and by the way, look at Revelation chapter three and verse nine. Those who are opposing the people of God in the city of Philadelphia, what does it say about them in chapter three and verse nine? Behold, I will make those of the synagogue of Satan who say that they are Jews and are not, but lie. Behold, I will make them come and bow down before your feet and they will learn that I have loved you. This same imagery as we see in the book of Isaiah, when those city gates are open and, and, and God's people go in and they're in, the, they're in the walls and the protection of God's salvation and God's grace and God's saving acts and saving merits. Then others will look and see they truly are loved by God. Those who have been the enemies and oppressed them, they, there will come a time when they, they will acknowledge that truly God loves these people. God has saved these people. Inside the city of salvation, the city of assurance, we are told in Isaiah 56 and verse 5. I want to read this to you. Isaiah 56 and verse 5. We are told the following. I will give in my house and within my walls a monument and a name better than sons 
and daughters. I will give them an everlasting name that shall not be cut off. What does that mean? What is that saying? Well, by the way, that's very close to what Revelation chapter 3 and verse 12 tells us. The one who conquers, speaking of God's people in the church in Philadelphia, I will make him a pillar. Isaiah says, I will make him a monument. Here God's saying, I will make him a pillar in the temple of my God. Never shall he go out of it. I will write on him the name of my God. Isaiah says, I will make them a monument, all those who come into my city, all those who, who, are, who are under my care. I'll make them a monument and I'll give them a new name. And here the people in Philadelphia are receiving the same promise. I will make him a pillar in the temple of my God. Never shall he go out of it. And I will write on him the name of my God and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem which comes down from my God out of heaven and my own new name. Yes, Jesus wants us to be witnesses, but the illusions of the Old Testament in this portion of Scripture, the illusions of the Old Testament here in Philadelphia, point me not to a picture that, that Jesus is saying, hey, I, I want you all to just go out and be witnesses, but, but what I see here, the picture that I see painted to the church in Philadelphia is that God wants us in the last day to be a people that are assur an assured people, a people that have the assurance of salvation salvation in other words this picture is more about jesus and less about us because see the assurance that comes to these people in philadelphia is not because of their acts it's not because of our acts but it's through the power of jesus in this one passage of scripture jesus says this listen to these these phrases just just the beginnings just the opening of these phrases i have set before you jesus says i know that you have but little power, Jesus says. In other words, what Jesus is saying, you have but little power, but, but where you are weak, I am strong. Jesus says, I will make. And again, he says, I will make. And then he says, I have loved you. And then he says, I will keep you. And then he says, I will make again. And then he says, I will write. The other letters all have actions of things that Jesus will do, but he says, if this doesn't happen, then I'm gonna come and take that away from you. If this doesn't happen, then I'm going to come and take that away from you. But, but, but Philadelphia has this exclusively positive statements over and over again of Christ's actions. I have set before you. I know that you have no power, but I have power. I will make. I will make. I have loved you. I will keep you. I will make again. I will write. Eight statements right there in those few short verses of assurance of Jesus' work. Not our work. Not our power, not our strength, but of Jesus' work on our behalf. Of course, this doesn't mean that Jesus isn't also working on behalf of the other churches, but, but, but the message in Philadelphia is this beautiful picture of the assurance of Jesus' salvation that, that he has set before us an open door that no one can close. And it's not, we don't keep it open because we work hard. We don't keep it open because we're perfect. We don't keep it open because we have so much power. It's kept open by the Holy One, by the True One, by the One who has the keys to salvation in the Kingdom of God. This message to Philadelphia is a message 
that we need at all times, but it is a message that we need in 2020. A message of, of hope. A message of salvation. A message of, of assurance. Jesus is working on our behalf. Jesus is holy. Jesus is truth. Jesus holds the key to the open door. And this open door is our blessed assurance. What the open door means to me this week, it hit me in this way, is that Jesus is working on my behalf to save me. In fact, I can have assurance in the works and the power of Jesus. I believe, yes, preachers can still preach it from the standpoint of we need to go be witnesses. But, but what I needed to hear from Jesus this week in this passage is that Jesus forgives me, is that Jesus loves me, is that Jesus is able to save to the uttermost. You know, whenever you... You think about passages maybe for the first time in a new way. You wonder, are you, are you approaching this correctly? And I, I found this letter that, that one of our founders, Ellen White, wrote to Uriah Smith in 1886. And, and it expresses, in better words than I could, what the open door means to me. And she actually references this promise of the open door in the context of assurance and salvation. Listen to what she wrote. She says, there have been sins among us as among ancient Israel. But thank God, listen to what she says, but thank God we have an open door which no man can shut. She's quoting there, Revelation chapter three. Men may say, I forgive all the injuries that you have done to me, but their forgiveness would not blot out one sin. But the voice sounding from Calvary, she says, my son, my daughter, thy sins be forgiven. That's what the open door means. That's what she's saying. The open door means that, that the voice from heaven is saying, my son, my daughter, thy sins are forgiven. And this is all efficacious. In other words, it's all encompassing. That word alone has power. What did Jesus say to the church in Philadelphia? I know that you have but little power. It's okay because that word of forgiveness from Jesus, that open door from Jesus has ultimate power and awakens the gratitude in the grateful heart. We have a mediator. There is but one channel of forgiveness and that channel is ever open. And through that channel, a rich flood of divine mercy and forgiveness comes pouring down to us. Here is where thousands are failing, she writes. They do not really believe that Jesus pardons them individually. They failed to take God at his word. He has assured us that he is faithful, that, that hath promised to forgive us and be just to his own law. His mercy is not wanting in anything. Were there one defective link in the chain, then we are hopelessly ruined in our sins. There is though not one flaw in it, not one missing link. Oh, precious redemption. Why do we, she says, why do we not bring this great truth more fully into our lives? Yes, we need to take it to the world, but, but right now she's saying this open door, this truth of the open door and forgiveness, why don't we bring it more fully into our lives? Do you believe that you're forgiven, that, that Jesus loves you right now as you are? That Jesus calls you as you are? 
Why do we not bring this great truth, she says, into our lives? How broad it is that God, for Christ's sake, forgives us. Me, she writes, even me. The moment we ask him to, in living faith, believing that he is fully able to do this. He's fully able to keep that door open and to welcome you in to the blessed assurance of Jesus. Our lone work is to say, Jesus, I need this. I ask for this. I don't know about you, but, but in my heart, I need to be reminded sometimes. I need to be reminded anew that Jesus is enough. And as we live in these crazy times and as we live facing the unknown in the days and the weeks ahead, we live facing the attacks of the devil and the discouragement of the devil. I, I want us all to take in more of this, this great truth that Jesus' forgiveness is enough. The door is open. Let us ask him for that gift. Jesus, we thank you so much for your blessed assurance. Lord Jesus, this week I needed to hear this. You know my heart. You know what I struggle with. You know the sins I'm struggling with. You know the fears and the doubts that I have. Jesus, thank you for, through this text, reminding me once again that that it's your work to save me. Even, even the act of me surrendering is your work. So Lord, humble my heart. May I recognize how little power I actually have. And may I fall on my knees before you, Jesus, and love you. And Jesus, may I allow you to love me the way you want to. Thank you for the open door, the reminder that the call from Calvary, come my sons, come my daughters, is all the power I need. Lord, I pray for each person that's watching right now that there's something they're struggling with that they will know the blessed assurance that they will call and ask Jesus And know, without a doubt, that you forgive and that you save. In your name I pray.